Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Welcome to the Commonwealth Club. I'm Mark Zitter, a member of the club's Board of Governors, chair of the Zetima Project, and your moderator. This is another one of the club's special virtual programs on the coronavirus in association with the Zetima Project. Please visit the club's website, commonwealthclub.org, to stay informed on these coronavirus programs and on other topics. I should tell you that these presentations are free. This program is generously supported by the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative and a collaborative of local funders and donors. We are very grateful for their support and encourage you to follow their example. You can make a donation to support the nonprofit Commonwealth Club at the same website I mentioned before, commonwealthclub.org. We proudly point out that we are the nation's oldest and largest public affairs forum. It's now my pleasure to introduce today's featured guest. Andy Slavitt was a tech entrepreneur and healthcare executive before President Obama asked him to run Medicare and Medicaid. Since leaving the government, he's been one of the fiercest critics of the current administration regarding all things healthcare. Yet his approach to changing healthcare and fighting the pandemic have been quite bipartisan and he informally advises leading Republicans as well as Democrats. Andy teamed with former FDA Chief Scott Gottlieb, a Trump appointee, to propose a $46.5 billion plan for COVID-19 contact tracing and isolation. He also was the lead author of a recent open letter entitled Stay Home, Save Lives that was signed by 16 top Republican and Democratic figures. Sheltering in place at his home in Minnesota, Andy hosts the In the Bubble podcast in collaboration with his 18-year-old son, Zach. Their guests have ranged from A.B. Klobuchar and Mark Cuban to Tina Fey. I recommend that podcast. I'll also mention that Andy has probably the largest Twitter following in all of U.S. healthcare, more than 440,000 people. And I just checked today, that's more than 10 times the size of the current CMS administrator. So clearly a lot of people want his uh, insights and guidance. Today is May 13th, 2020. And that's important for those listening later via podcast or the radio because things are moving so quickly. The last program I hosted in this series was just about two weeks ago on April 27th. And that day we had 915 diagnosed cases of COVID-19 in the U.S. As of today, we have 1.4 million, which is more than a 50% increase in just over two weeks. COVID-19 is now the leading cause of death in America. So clearly we haven't licked this problem. So that's where I'd like to start. But before I get started, Andy, first of all, welcome. And how are you and your family holding out? Thanks for having me, Mark. And thanks to the Commonwealth Club. Um, we are we are holding up, I think, uh, well here. Um, you know, we are not among the Americans that are um, uh, going through the danger uh, and the deprivation that um, COVID-19 brings. Um, we are uh, the lucky category of people that have seen our lives um, upended a little bit. But, you know, for my wife and I, because we have two, uh, we have an 18 and 22 year old, uh, for us, that means we get to spend more time with them. For them, it's not so good because, you know, they pretty much have to spend time with us. But so, so it goes. Yeah. Yeah. I've got kids the same age in the same situation. Now, in late April, the White House and the CDC announced a plan to reopen the economy and you went public and called it a sensible plan. What did you like about that plan and how has it played out since then? Well, look, first of all, I think as, as scary as coronavirus is, as um, much as it feels like we don't really know what to do, the good news is if you look around the globe, um, there are countries that are safely managing and reopening 
their countries um, in the face of all of this. Um, and each of them has a strategy. You know, the Czech Republic wearing masks. Um, Greece has done this with a high amount of discipline. Um, Germany has done it with a lot of testing. Vietnam with a lot of testing. New Zealand uh, with a color-coded system. Hong Kong, because of the experience that they've had before, really knows how to address this. So I think the first and most important point is this is not impossible. Uh, it feels like we're in the middle of a maze and we don't know how to get out, but, but it is possible. And the plan that we released, that you referred to, that the White House released, took a lot of input from a lot of sources and was a sensible reopening plan. It has effectively called on ma- managing caseloads lower, just waiting a little bit longer to start to open up again, and then having some capabilities in place that would keep people safe, the ability to test more quickly, the ability to do contact tracing, uh, and so forth. So it's a good plan if we stuck with it. Um, you know, unfortunately, I think um, people are jumping the gun, both to the federal level and the state level, and in many cases saying, yeah, that's the plan we started a few weeks ago, but um, we kind of want to get back to it. And we're, And I think that's potentially very risky. So obviously a number of states have jumped ahead and lifted their shelter in place orders. Um, uh, uh, are you concerned about that? Do you think that'll result in a surge, a resurge? Well, we could talk about what happened in May and June because yeah. that's how this virus works. It spreads exponentially. It spreads asymptomatically. And without a lot of testing, we really don't know what it's doing. So our eyes on this are not very good. It's one of the reasons why this is um, this is sort of this sort of very enticing idea uh, because if you manage to the rearview mirror if you sit here at the end of April and say oh it looks like we're flattening the curve even though I think in much of the country we're not flattening the curve but the New York numbers are down enough that it makes it look like we're flattening the curve it becomes very enticing and you look out the window and say looks not so bad out there the hospitals aren't full but what you're looking at is about you're looking at the results of the activities of about a month ago you're not looking at the results of your current activity, which is kind of very hard to mentally connect to. It is for me um, to, to connect to. So what we're doing now, um, if we are opening up, uh, we are circulating more, we are getting ourselves more exposed to this uh, very transmissible disease, we will begin to see the results of that given the current state of testing, given how long it takes for the, the symptoms to set, and given how long it takes for people to be hospitalized and go to the ICU, we'll begin to, after Memorial Day, uh, we'll be able to answer definitively what happened now. So my caution to everybody is that whatever your state allows or doesn't allow, please continue to be as cautious and as conservative as possible in taking care of yourself and your family. So the various plans that you've uh, been involved with, written about, or, or observed, what are the specific criteria you believe are the right ones to say we should reopen in any given state or area? Well, first of all, um, I, I do believe that there are parts of the country that are safe to reopen with conditionally. There are large parts of rural. I mean, I get call from governors who say, "Gosh, the rural, rural rural parts of the state have no cases, and they want to reopen. What should I what should I do?" And you know, my 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 opinion, which may not be the popular opinion, is look. Let them let them cautiously reopen, but but ask them to do it under a couple of conditions. One is um, that they have to have the intelligence and the ability, if things change, to to close rapidly. And that means, you know, because the difference between finding out you've had an outbreak in two days versus in ten days is dramatic. Mm-hmm. It can it can be absolutely dramatic. So make sure they have some of the tools in place to monitor and test 
uh, all of that. Make sure that if you've got hotspots, like um, like factories, call centers, uh, nursing homes, et cetera, that you have really brought public health capabilities to bear so that those are safe. Um, and the ability to do testing and contact tracing is a way of saying, not that we're going to get rid of coronavirus, because I think all, everybody listening and watching knows that, that that's not really the short-term aim. The short-term aim is to be able to contain this to cases instead of outbreaks. In other words, we've been living through in March and April as a forest fire. What we want to live, we want is a couple of campfires, and when we see the campfires, to be able to contain them. And there's tools to that that we that are tried and true um, that other countries are putting in place that, that we can put in place um, to, to do that. And if you have that, I think Americans can safely step by step uh, reopen. It, it may not be reopening in a way that was exactly like life was like in December of last year. Um, yeah. it, it, it could be different, but it's a step forward. So some rural areas are probably ready for that because they've never really had many of cases. Do you know of any states that are ready to reopen at this point? Uh, I think there are, are, look, there are states that are in much better shape than others. Um, the reason I don't talk about it at the state level is because that's just not how people live. So I think I'm encouraged with every every governor, you know, unless you're Delaware or Rhode Island, where where you're small enough, um, to to really think in terms of the regions of your state. Um, and and obviously that's not a perfect solution because people I can people are saying, well, wait a minute, what if people travel? What if people commute? Mm-hmm. All of that is true. Um, that you know we're not we're not shopping for perfect solutions. We're shopping for smart ways to to contain things. And the truth is, if you said to me, and I'm the mayor of a small town, and I've got no cases, and I've got 10 small businesses, all of whom people have made their entire livelihoods on those 10 small businesses, that I have to keep those closed, um, I, I, I would be understandable to argue because, um, you know, we are, some of us are experiencing the life and death impacts of the coronavirus. Some of us haven't experienced them yet and are experiencing the livelihood impacts, and you know, we can't expect everybody in a small town in West Virginia to um, behave the, the way that, that everybody in New York is behaving. Now, two months from now, it may be the reverse. It may be, and I think people need to be under to understand that those small towns, right now the 10 biggest hotspots in the country are small towns. Mm-hmm. So yeah. when that happens, we're going to have to make sure to support those communities. But to ask them to spend months and months and months and months and months waiting um, it, it's really hard. It's hard for people to do. It's not just hard economically. It's hard sociologically. Yeah. Yeah. Now the approach you take, which is kind of the standard public health playbook of, uh, isolate, tra- test, isolate, trace, and so forth. Um, that's one approach. Certainly there's been lots of discussion about the notion of the other approach, which is herd immunity. You know, Sweden is taking that approach. Uh, Larry Brilliant, Brilliant just had a tweet about that and so forth. What are your thoughts about the pros and cons of herd immunity? I'll answer that, but I also want to introduce the third way, which okay. I know you, you've talked about before, Mark, but I think is, is really important. Look, herd immunity, um, to achieve herd immunity would be incredibly expensive. I mean, New York has got, gotten to about 15 to 20% herd immunity, and it's cost them dearly in terms of lives. And by expensive, I mean in terms of life and death. Um, and so if you were to get, you know, if you, if, if the ratios stayed about the same, to get another 10% immunity in this country um, would be, you know, could be a few hundred, would be about a few hundred thousand lives lost just to get to 10%. Because, you know, we've had about, you know, we've had maybe seven, eight, 10, 12, 15 million people exposed 
we've got a country of 300 and, um, you know, 50, 60 million people, whatever the number is, um, to get to levels that are even approaching herd immunity levels, which maybe even if they're not 80%, if they're 50%, uh, would be, would be a very, very expensive experiment. I think Sweden's learning that. I think England learned that. Um, I think, I think those are perilous choices. There's a, there, there's another way, if you don't mind me speaking sure. about that, yeah. which is, um, another, it's another change. It's another thing we'd have to do differently. Uh, and that is for if 80 to 90% of the country wore a reusable high quality mask. Mm-hmm. Now, those aren't yet available. Um, every, every, I encourage everybody to wear the masks that are available today. But if we had reusable high quality, as in, in, in Project N95 type masks, the virus would have no place to go. And we would slowly kill the virus, which is what's happened in Hong Kong. It's what's happened in the Czech Republic because this virus needs to find hosts and it finds hosts by getting into the eyes, nose and mouth. And if everybody were, were wearing these, the transmission rate, the R naught would go down to, you could go down as low as 0.3, 0.2 and that would kill the virus pretty quickly uh, in, in a pretty short amount of time. Now there's a lot of, Questions with that too. How do you get compliance? How do you get kids to wear them? How do you make them fit right? How do you get them to everybody? But if you compare that strategy to every other strategy, uh, getting a, getting great therapies, getting getting a a vaccine, um, it's not clear that it's it may not be the most innovative, inventive way to get. Remember, more lives have been saved with clean water and clean air than with all kinds of drug development. Sometimes the innovations are quite simple and right in front of us. Yeah, yeah. We tend to overemphasize technology and underemphasize some of the public health measures I know. One of the things that's been uh, distressing, at least to me, is we seem to have two narratives in the U.S. that are unfortunately uh, attached to political parties about this pandemic. We know the statistics are pretty clear. The surveys show Democrats are way more likely than Republicans to be concerned about the severity of the pandemic on average. They're more likely to be reluctant about reopening the economy as quickly. And they are more willing to participate in contact tracing, particularly on an automated basis. Uh, Republicans are polled to show that they think that the reported death numbers are inflated. And Democrats are the reverse. They think they're undercounted. So regardless of who's right there, what do you think about this partisan divide? Why do we have this divide about the facts when we're all facing the same enemy? And how is that that affecting our ability to fight the pandemic? I think we've shown that we're pretty good at looking for and sowing division where there's opportunity. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not surprising in an election year that it will ev- that it eventually turn to this. It's also not surprising that people will get frustrated. But I want to go back and say that I think I really still do believe that most Americans want the same thing. Um, they want to they want to reopen the country safely. I don't know anybody that wants to see greater loss of life on either mm-hmm. side. I don't know anybody that wants to see greater unemployment on either side. And I think we got to be careful of attributing bad motives to the quote, other side because we've gotten in the habit of doing that. Mm-hmm. It's okay to say that there are different approaches. And the truth is, if we're honest about it, nobody really knows, right? Nobody really knows the best answer. Um, we, 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 there are people say, Oh, in the summer, it's going to go down. And there are people that say, you know, um, if we, we we're going to learn, uh, and we ought to be, um, as I think Anthony Fauci said the other day in his testimony, we ought to have some humility. Um, we ought to, we ought to try to rely on, um, the best that science can tell us. 
we got to try to balance that the best we can with allowing people to get back to their lives. We need to watch for and support the consequences of this. I think, I, I think my belief is that there's not really a choice between the economy and uh, public health. I think they, I think they end up being joined at the hip. And the reason I say that is because for the economy to pick up, let's just say you're going to go that route and say, you know, what, we, we want to have the economy pick up. What has to happen? Well, consumers have to start spending money again. They have to start traveling on airplanes. They have to start buying cars. They have to start shopping. Businesses have to start feeling comfortable signing leases and hiring and buying equipment. And as long as you've got a record number of people dying every day, as long as you've got people with, who are fearful of their own safety, I don't think those things happen in a major way. Yes, people might go to bars and restaurants and there might be some, some economic activity. Um, and, and I'm not saying there's no cost to it, but the economy doesn't fully come back until people feel safe, in my view. And so I think, uh, well, I don't doubt that there are different people that value each of these things differently. And I think that's okay. I think the public wants, if the public has a plan and got a plan from the federal government from the state governments, which said, look, here's how we open safely. Mm-hmm. And a little bit of patience is required. And there's a little bit of imperfection required. And yes, there's going to be some losses along the way. I think that gets tremendous public support. And if you look at the polling inside states, Republican or Democrat, Ohio or New York, there's tremendous support for governors that are leading the way. And I think a pretty solid way. Okay. Let's talk about that difference because uh, clearly there's been a lot of discussion about uh, the federal government's role. And some critics would say that the Trump administration has sent mixed messages about how much it wants to be in control versus give, uh, give flexibility to the states. And, and, and whether those criticisms are valid or not, it seems like there's a real discussion to be had about which decisions should be made at the federal level, the state level, the local level, and so forth. So what do you see as the more appropriate responsibilities of the federal government versus a more decentralized approach? Right. And I really appreciate the way you asked the question, Mark, because, um, you know, the, 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 the conversation I think we're going to have on this panel, the, this discussion now is around bipartisanship and so forth. And so um, you can ask the question, well, gee, if you're bipartisan, how could you, you can't really criticize the Trump administration because then you're not being bipartisan. Mm-hmm. And it's true. I've had, I've been a critic of the Trump administration throughout those first three years when I believe um, the administration has deserved it around issues that are, that I think are important to the public. Uh, but in this particular case, I think what we're just looking for is competency and execution. I don't think it's actually a Democrat or Republican thing. I, I believe if you imagine Mitt Romney as president right now, um, who's a Republican, I believe we would have a highly competent, disciplined, um, focused, metric-driven strategy where the federal government and the states would be working in partnership and the federal government wouldn't be afraid to do the things that you've got to do in these tough situations, which is what? Number one, you've got to be consistently delivering the hard news, even if it's not good. Mm-hmm. And you can't cherry-pick information you can't tell Americans what you want. You can't tell people, here's what I hope for. You can't tell people, I hope this medicine works. Uh, we're doing better in this country, that country, all that. No, no, no place for that, I think, in either a Romney administration or probably a, a Biden or an Obama administration, because I think there'd be a recognition that we're going to go through some pain. We got to level with the public, do the right thing and, and get through it. Secondly, they'd be a huge priority on arming our front line. Um, I think, I don't see either a Biden, Obama, a Romney sleeping at night without 
complete safety and protection for our frontline medical workers and our essential workforce, I think that would be an obsession. Um, just like if you want to call yourself a wartime general, you arm your troops, you protect your troops. Uh, we have not done that adequately. We're doing that late. I don't think we would sugarcoat that. Uh, I think that would be vital. I think um, a competent approach would create accountability for all the key things that need to happen with the top people in the country, not a junior varsity squad, but the top people in the country. They'd be accountable. They'd be visible. They'd be reporting metrics. And we would be tracking that pretty regularly. There would be a lot of things left under the states. Mm-hmm. Um, the implementation, execution, delivery, all has to happen at the local level with federal assistance. But there's something states can't do on their own. They can't procure supply chains. They can't set pricing. They can't, um, they can't do uh, R&D very efficiently and effectively. And right now, a lot of states are taking those things on themselves in a very inefficient way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So there's the testing piece. There's also the, um, the tracking and understanding at the, at the uh, higher level about where are the hot spots, uh, where are the needs and so forth too. And that seems like something that a federal, uh, federal team could coordinate at the very least. Sure. Look, I mean, uh, we live in a federalist like kind of country, right? So it's, we can't, we can't, um, I, I, you know, I get, I often get the question, why don't we just do like they do in Germany and, and just say, this is it. This is how it, one size, this is how it goes. One size fits all. Um, and we just, we don't, we can't do that any more than we can do. We can be, do what China does and say, we're going to lock people up in quarantine without their, their choice. You know, th- we're going to, we're going to have to not only play with, but strengthen our liberal democracy mm-hmm. along the way. And the way you do that is by being transparent with people about your decisions, uh, you, you you take input, you participate. It's okay to let people march. It's okay to let people say, we don't like this governor's policy. It's not okay for them to carry weapons of war. To me, yeah. that's not, that's, that's, that's out of bounds. But it's okay for uh, all of those things to happen in the messy, visible process of, of a democratic society, figuring out how to react to these um, very challenging issues. And we should have some tolerance for this and not instantly turn it into a, a, a massive fight. Um, we got to have patience with one another in this time. Yeah, yeah. Well, more than federal officials, the governors see the pandemic's impact, you know, from the front row because they're close to their constituents. And I know you speak regularly to governors. I believe both Democrats and Republicans uh, do you see less ideology and partisanship um, at the state level? And, and which governors do you see as doing particularly good jobs on fighting COVID? Yeah, this is going to be a, this may be one of the more interesting books that gets written, right? Coming out of this, like some uh, historian writes a book about different approaches from different governors. Um, you know, the person who gets a lot of um, applause is is Andrew Cuomo, because he has really taken on this role of, empathizing, talking to people, being honest, kind of the fireside chat. But but the truth is, you know, on another dimension, you know, New York was six days late. When they, when California had a thousand cases and New York had a thousand cases, it took New York six days longer to, re- to react than it took California. And when things grow exponentially, that's the difference between you know, 10,000 and 100,000 or 20,000 and 200,000 cases. And so you could also look to, um, you know, Gavin Newsom, Jay Inslee. You could look, you'd certainly look 
to the governors in Ohio and Maryland um, as as governors who have really done a good job. And I indeed the vast majority of governors are trying to to figure it out. And let's face it, they're all open to criticism. I, I on my podcast I had Ron, I had uh, David Frum on, and he said something very interesting, which is he said it's it's impossible to get an A in managing a pandemic, but it's really easy to get a B. And I thought that was wise because I think what he was saying is there is no perfect answer. You can't make everybody happy. You're going to lose people. Um, it, it's a, just a horrible situation. But to get a B, what do you need to do? You need to listen to your experts. You need to show empathy. You need to provide transparency into your thought process and making decisions. You need to adjust along the way. And the public could be, is actually very forgiving. They're even forgiving of bad news. I think this is one of Trump's biggest miscalculations, actually, is that he underestimates the public tolerance for the truth and for bad news because he worries how it will reflect on him. I would argue that politically, the smartest thing you could possibly do is use this as an opportunity to say, hey, this happened to us, and I'm going to use it as a chance to level with and rebuild trust uh, with the public. Now, I'm not a political advisor of his. Uh, I'm, and, and nor would I be, uh, but I think his instincts here are bad for, have been bad for public health, but I think they've probably also not been good for him politically. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I mentioned in your intro that you and Scott Godley proposed this $46.5 billion plan for COVID-19 contact tracing and isolation, which I assume is what you think is the best route to take overall. Do you think the federal government will come up with that funding? And, and if it doesn't, what do you think will be the alternative? So first of all, maybe I can, can, can I answer the question why bipartisanship is important now? Sure. <laughs> um, first of all, you know, the coronavirus doesn't just spread within parties. It spreads from Democrat to Republican, Republican to Democrat. Mm. Uh, so we ought, to, we ought to all understand that um, if half of us believe one thing and the other half of us believe another uh, in, in, with, with, with an infectious disease, uh, we're, we're all, we all end up in the same boat. So it, it really is important for people like me, Scott, others, um, to be as much as possible getting to agreement, saying some of the same things, uh, and, and even, even people representing sort of different political belief systems. Um, second thing is it's an opportunity. It's just an opportunity for us to, um, uh, to take what has become um, a real, um, a real liability in our country, which is our div- divisiveness, and start to heal it. Mm-hmm. You know, I've done several congressional hearings in the last week. One with Ways and Means, one with Energy and Commerce, and they're the most. And if you saw the Health Committee hearing yesterday, everybody, everybody was mostly civil, mm-hmm. um, asking the same questions, problem-solving questions. Democrats and Republicans building on each other, asking the same sorts of questions. Wanting the problem solved, testing and tracing important to everybody. And I think honestly, Mark, that the American way at its best is people of different points of view willing to get in the room and work together to hash out and solve problems if they're of good faith. This is where again, if you're bringing an AK 47, you're out. Sorry. Mm-hmm. But, yeah. but if you said to me, you know what? I, we disagree on lots and lots of topics, but I really want to save lives. And I really want to get this economy started again. If I can't get in the room with you and listen to you, um, then our republic isn't functioning 
all that well. And I think the, a lot of people, Democrats and Republicans, are heartened by the fact that we've had some bipartisan, big bipartisan votes and to support them. That feels like, hey, maybe Congress has our back here. Now, I worry that that streak is going to come to an end. So that that's why I think it's important um, to now go to your question. Yeah. Uh, so Scott and I and uh, about 14 others, um, including uh, Bill Frist and Mike Levitt on the Republican side, including a lot of scientific experts like like Larry Brilliant, um, Farzad Mastashari, um, a, a number of others. You, you, you can you can find this proposal. That actually, NPR has the letter uh, up on it. Um, got together and said, um, "What is the what are the comprehensive tools we should give to states?" And we went and suggested that Congress pass a three part plan to vote to create a uh, a workforce that could do contact tracing. Um, uh, uh, provide the resources so that people could have um, could be voluntarily socially isolate in hotels if they couldn't do it safely at home, and provide some sort of income support uh, for mm-hmm. people. So that if you're if you are indeed not able to go to work and your employer's not paying you, you can you can get paid. Um, it uh, our proposal uh, in very close to that form made it into um, the Heroes Act that the House released yesterday. Um, we've done lots and lots of briefings in the House and the Senate, bipartisan uh, briefings. Um, we, we've, we've reviewed it with people in the White House. Um, so on the one hand, I'd say there, there is support. Uh, I don't think people, you know, I think people have questions, which I'm happy to talk about. People have their concerns about contact tracing, for sure, we can talk about. But I think there's broad support. Now, what happens with this bill is another matter, yeah. because I think, there's a lot of politics that are entering into this bill and what it ends up looking like and how long it takes and what stays and what goes, I don't know, but I'm optimistic. I'm optimistic that the resources will be there. Great. So we kind of got through the, well, haven't gotten through the first hurdle, but certainly made some good progress there. The, 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 the related question is, let's say we get the money and let's say we hire and train the contract tracers. There's a lot of questions about whether it will, you know, contact tracing, how well it will work in America. I know Mark Lipsitch that, that Harvard has talked a lot about how contract tracing really works if you have a small number of cases and, and you know, you, that are known and a small number that are unknown and, and the resources and everything else and doesn't feel like that's true. And certainly the, um, the notion of doing it uh, electronically, having, you know, uh, the, the Google and Apple sorts of initiatives. Um, unfortunately, the, the, the polls show that the majority of Americans aren't willing to have you know, to sign up voluntarily for tracing technology. I think even Singapore only got about 20% of its citizens to download. So the real question I have for you is, why do we think that contract tracing will work in America, even if we have the funding for it? Well, I think we can agree it'll work better than not having it, well, right? Yeah. I mean, so if you said, hey, I got diagnosed um, three days ago as positive, would you like me to tell you the 10 people I came in contact with over the last two days? And I said, no, 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 don't do that. We're not going to. We're not going to we're not going to alert them that, that they've been infected. We're just going to let it hang. We're going to let it play out. Yeah. I don't. I doubt that whoever you quoted from Harvard really believes that. I mean, I love everybody's got an opinion. Everybody's very smart, but thank God people like that aren't making actual decisions because um, it, it's just it's fun to it's fun to it's fun to say that this won't work perfectly. Everything won't work perfectly, but it's just sort of what's contact tracing at its basic level. It's just exactly that, Mark. It's if someone told you that you were COVID-19 positive and, and you were able to trace it, you got it back, you got it three days ago. Wouldn't you want to know everybody you came into close contact with over those three days? Wouldn't you want to let them know? 
that, and look, in, these, in this day and age, um, we're all much more socially distant. So if they said, who's somebody that you were within six feet of for more than 10 minutes over the last three weeks, over the last three days, you know, you, you, if someone said, and I've got a systematic way of helping you think that through. And they would go, oh, my wife, oh, my daughter, oh, you know what? Um, a, a neighbor came over. We were, we were, we were, it was only five minutes and we were really far apart, but I probably should let them know that anyway. And they were like, oh, I'm so glad you told me because I was with my grandmother and then we're able to alert her and we give all those people tests. Mm-hmm. And the idea is that you contain it. The idea is not to eliminate cases. The idea yeah. is that you contain it so that you say, okay, great. If the circle is only possibly 12 people, we've, we've tested people at the outskirts. We know who's infected and the people that are, we make sure that they stay socially isolated for a few days. It's a, it's pretty basic. It's obviously easier when there's fewer people than when there's more people. And so one of the things that has to happen is the number of cases does have to continue to drop for it to be done uh, in any kind of more efficient way. Mm-hmm. Second question around technology. I don't think technology is the answer, um, but largely for the reason you described. I don't think um, even if the technology works perfectly, that, um, that, the, that it works given that people will have to opt in. Now, mm-hmm. In a, in a, in a wildly optimistic case, let's say 40% of Americans opted in, right? Cause I, cause I don't think this will do, we'll do this on an opt out basis, even though I think there's a case to be made that you could. So what happens if 40% of people opt in? That means you've got a 16% effective rate, right? Because if you were infected and you were in contact with me, we both have to have opted in yeah. to the technology. Yeah. So it's 0.4 times 0.4. So there's a 16% effective, massive holes, right? 84% holes. So technology can be a support. It can, you could use technology to help jog your memory of, oh, where have I been in the last few days? I'm not sending this information to anybody, but I can trig, I can go where I was. And if you wanted to, you could alert other people that were there automatically. But that's mm-hmm. not really what we're talking about. Now, I will tell you what the polling data says. The polling data says that the majority of people not a large majority, but a majority of people would be comfortable using an app like that. Um, and, but a sizable majority wouldn't. Mm. And if you then said to people, if you use an app like this, you would be able to get back to work more quickly and there'd be a benefit to being able to open up more quickly. The majority grows to something like 70%. But still in our country, 30%, we shouldn't ignore a sizable minority of people who are uncomfortable and understand the fact that, that people are, that there are some people that are, that are uncomfortable. Yeah. And just to get clear, cause we have a few questions from the audience about this. The contract tracing only works if you're doing a lot of testing, right? Otherwise you don't know who to trace. Right. right? So that's how we find asymptomatic people and, uh, and trace them. Right. right. Well. You would never do contact tracing without testing. Likewise, doing testing without contact tracing doesn't make a whole lot of sense either. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So some questions too about what's the impact of this going to be over the long term? How much do you think, how do you think this will change our society our, and our healthcare system? You know, it's funny that that question just because I, you know, I think the um, analogy a lot of us I think I think about that for in many of our own lifetimes was 9-11, right? Mm-hmm. How did 9-11 change us? Um, and I think we're like, we're, we're, we're excellent at taking like the very literal lessons. Mm-hmm. Like, like we'll never take our shoes. We'll never have our shoes on again. Getting going through an airport. We'll never have water again going through an airport because that happened once. 
So like, I suspect we'll never run out of ventilators in this country, like for the next thousand years, like the ventilators will outlast humans now because yeah. we're, we're just going to make so many of them. Um, and, and I think, um, there is good evidence though that as time passes, memories fade. And so if we really, um, want to, um, take real advantage of these lessons from a public health standpoint, mm-hmm. the, the real investment in, in infrastructure and so forth will, um, will be, we smart to incur. There have been people saying forever that if we, we just need to invest a hundred billion dollars in public health. Well, now we've spent three, four trillion because we didn't. So hopefully we will make some of the smart investments. Pandemic preparedness, there's really no excuse for us not to be prepared for this. I still think we would have had outbreaks, but they would have been much, much fewer and much less deadly if we would have followed the plan that Ron, Ron Clayton laid out. Um, I think there will be some habits that will change. I mean, if, if, if our kid, when our kids are our age, Mark, um, they may look back and tell their kids how people our age used to actually grab each other's palms when we saw each other and, you know, connect germs together. They may be a thing of the past. Mm-hmm. You know, people might be wearing masks. There might be social changes. As for the economy, um, I think if we deal with it right, there's all kinds of evidence the economy eventually comes back. Um, it's, it's hard when you're in the middle of it to have the patience mm-hmm. know that. But it's also, um, you know, remember after the 1918, uh, 1918 flu, we had the roaring 20s. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, you know, there, there will be plenty of act- economic activity. I suspect we will manufacture more things here in the U.S. Hopefully we won't become isolationists. Hopefully we'll still trade. Hopefully we'll still support other parts of the world, but I think we will um, build on our own supplies. So the economy may be different and they may even be better in some senses. Healthcare may have more telemedicine involved. We may have more electric cars um, as we, as we rebuild. It sort of, our political leaders have an opportunity to rebuild the country, um, even in some, some more interesting ways. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about the healthcare changes. I mean, some people say, well, this will lead to just pointing out the need that everyone needs coverage. So we're more likely to get universal healthcare after this. Or they say, well, wait, Italy has universal healthcare and it hasn't helped them so much in this case. That's a crazy idea. Yeah, no. <laughs> I don't think your Commonwealth uh, guests are going to find that a good idea. No, look, I mean, there's no one thing that would have fixed everything, right? So it's 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 not like if everybody had healthcare coverage, we wouldn't have had a public health emergency. Uh, but I would say that we learned a couple things. Like you could take perfect care of your family, mm-hmm. uh, but all of a sudden you realize in an infectious with infectious disease that person you sit next to on the airplane or the train in the morning or the bus or who comes in contact with you at work, if they're not also able to afford to take care of themselves, um, then, then you're only going to be as healthy as your least healthy neighbor. Mm-hmm. Unless we want to live in a guarded gate society um, and become more of a, of that kind of country than, than, than we are. And um, I hope we, hope we don't. And so look, the basic premise of universal care is that pretty simply just says that everybody should be afforded to take care of their family. If someone gets sick and keep them healthy. And remember now prevention is going to be even more important with infectious diseases. Um, so we're going to have to, we're going to have to find a way to wrestle with that. Am I optimistic that that's going to happen right away? Not necessarily. Like I don't think the old political battle lines have gone away. And as much as I think we need a bipartisan response, to the pandemic, uh, I'd love to tell you that 
there's going to be bipartisanship throughout healthcare. I don't mm-hmm. see that happening unless uh, there are electoral changes that, that make that clearer. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, I've had some very intelligent people say to me, we need to reopen faster and let's do it a smart way. And one smart way is uh, we know what about a third of the people who've died from this pandemic are uh, people in nursing homes, whether they work there or live or are or, or residents there. Um, COVID-19 seems to be most dangerous for elderly people or people with other health problems, but doesn't kill a lot of younger people. So can't we reopen schools and colleges or allow most people under 50 or under 40 to return to work without risking so many deaths? Is there a strategy there? You know, the hardest thing to do is to figure out whether or not people are trying to fit data into the narrative they want or if they're really truly following the facts mm. I know who you're talking about. Uh, and I think it's nonsense. Um, completely nonsense. Um, not, not that we shouldn't try to protect people in nursing homes, but the fact that we can isolate because these mm. people are talking about not having a vaccine for five to 15 years. Do you think you can isolate people with lupus for 15 years and tell them they can't go out? Then we can tell anybody who's had cancer that they're no longer really can be an active member of society. Um, we can tell, um, anybody immunosuppressed, sorry, country's not for you anymore. You're going to have to work from home forever. Mm-hmm. I don't buy that as a solution. I buy that as an argument of convenience. Um, and I buy that as an argument without a whole lot of empathy, um, to be frank. And quite honestly, you know, people who live in nursing homes, um, uh, they live in nursing homes because someone can't afford to take care of them at home any longer. They can't afford to take care of themselves. Mm-hmm. Uh, it doesn't mean they're discarded. Mm-hmm. Um, and the average person in a nursing home, many of them live, um, you know, eight to 10 years and um, they have families and a lot of them were in the Korean war and a lot of them were in Vietnam. And, and like, I find it um, honestly a little bit repulsive to hear people say, well, let's just isolate these other people over here. And, and by the way, most of the people dying are in nursing homes. And well, they're not quite saying that it's acceptable. Or they're not saying it anyway. They're not saying it's acceptable. What they are saying is, why should I let that get in my way of my life? I think that's the implication. And by the way, I'm not saying that that's an unreasonable thing to think, but I'm saying that's why we elect people um, to our country to, to lead us. So there's not a tyranny of the majority that takes the people that are more vulnerable because it's not just old people. It's black and brown people. Mm-hmm. When you say let's open up what that's, what that's effectively doing. And the people who are, who are saying this to you, what they're not saying is what we've just done is we've made it legal for people to open up their businesses and fire anybody who doesn't want to come in because they feel unsafe and they can't collect unemployment insurance. So if you've got lupus, if you've had cancer and I open up this um, hair salon or restaurant or whatever it is, and you say, I don't feel safe coming to work, you can no longer collect unemployment insurance. And so I find it, a, I find it an argument that has, all kinds of holes in it. Sounds reasonable at a high level, but falls down when it comes to reality. We're going to send you, they also say, we're going to send you, we're going to allow you to go to school unless you live with someone who's sick. How long is that going to go on for? Why don't we, why don't we do something sensible? Testing and tracing, masks, solve the problem, spend a couple more months executing the plan that the White House put out, make it safer, and then begin to open up. They're implying with their argument that the people on the, there's some people on the other side of this that want to shut the society down for like until there's a vaccine. 
That is the exact implication. They almost say it explicitly. The people are saying, shut it down to have a vaccine. Nobody's saying that. That's a straw man argument. Mm-hmm. But I think it's pretty hard to isolate out the people who are at low risk and reopen just with that group because they live with other people who are high risk very often. Yeah, I, look, I think there's 130 million people in the country with pre-existing conditions. So if you're if you're right, if you happen to like be in a think tank and you're 45 years old and you're healthy and you're like, why can't I go do my thing? Why can't I, why can't my, the companies I invest in be back in business? Um, that, you know, that, that's, that's why. Okay. Well, let's go back to the nursing home thing. Cause it is a fact that a, a large percentage of people in nursing homes are, they're disproportionately represented the deaths quite so. How can we make nursing homes safer? They really weren't set up for infectious disease control, but now that's what they have to be. Is that plausible that we can actually transform that industry? Well, look, I was, I was with Rachel Maddow the first day that we were, that we covered this, uh, nursing homes. We passed in the Obama administration the most comprehensive nursing home safety legislation, 15 years in the making, um, had massive amounts of infection control provisions. And in December of 17, to some fanfare, the Trump administration ripped them up and said they wouldn't enforce them because they said it was an example of uh, regulatory overreach and, 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 and too much regulation. Um, you can look at my Twitter feed the day that happened. Um, I was kicking and screaming and I still am kicking and screaming about it because they're now trying to go back and do off to the barn doors, but open all of the same things that should have been done before. You're right, Mark. Um, nursing homes and, and even more broadly, long-term care and elder care communities are terrible at infection control. Um, there are, are 30,000 deaths a year from infections in, in nursing homes before this happened. Um, and there are so many practices, simple practices that are just bad public health. People, uh, you know, uh, 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 unchecked and unlimited guests, uh, that, that can, that can come in, um, doctors and nurses that go back into the community and then work over nursing home to nursing home to nursing home. The, the communal living situations, the ventilation situations, all these things uh, that are well-known and studied. So what what can be done? You know, now there's task forces being created everywhere. That's great. But um, let's give you a couple things. One is uh, in, in this bill, in this HEROES bill, and I really hope it lasts, is a big investment in home and community-based services. And and by the way, just so you don't, in, 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 your, in your head, have an image in a nursing home of just an elderly person, yeah. Filled with people who live with disabilities, right? Young people, lots of young people in nursing homes. Uh, they can be take care of safe, taken care of safely at home and in the community with home and community-based services. Um, what I would, I would be doing if I were still there, we would, we would be testing every single person that works in a nursing home facility. Uh, not that hard to do. We would, be, we would be giving PPE to everybody who comes into, who works and comes into a nursing home facility. That's still not being done. That's still not being done. Uh, I would be much more transparent. I would have a daily call and a daily scorecard of every nursing home in the country. The first time we hear about a nursing home in New Jersey shouldn't be that we go, in Cherry Hill Nursing Home, I don't know if that place exists, so forgive me, 45 people died yesterday. Why is that the first time I'm hearing about that? Why do I have to wait till 45 people die? Why don't we hear um, every bit along the way how safe these nursing homes are and make that public? That's being asked of the administration. They've still not done it. Um, so we point to this problem, but we don't act on this problem. Yeah. 
You know, um, you founded uh, Town Hall Ventures. You co-founded this investment firm. And I know it, its mission says it favors companies that serve underserved populations. We've got lots of healthcare inequities in America. We had them before this, the coronavirus. We have, we're seeing that even more right now. So how can we make sure that those populations get the testing and the care they need? And when a vaccine becomes available, that they're not last in line for it. I'm so glad you asked that question. This is just reveals like what a good person you are and what a good mind you have thinking about these issues um, now, because if let, let, let's, let's just agree to this. We were, we were uh, less prepared than we wanted to be in February and March when this started happening. Right. We all know that. I'm not saying that to put blame on the Trump administration right now, because I don't think that's the most constructive, you know, place to spend energy, but let's agree not to be unprepared for the next things that are going to happen. Let's agree that we will make sure we have equitable distribution of a vaccine. So let's get all of the uh, equipment into uh, community health centers, into um, into all of the kind of local um, uh, drugstores. Let's get them to uh, get uh, stand-up logistics of nurses into churches uh, and other places of worship in inside communities. The one thing we know about vulnerable communities is you have to bring care to them. You can't expect them to take three buses to get to where we can drive to. You can't expect them to be aware of the things that we do internet searches for every day. The one thing I can promise you is if and when we have a vaccine, um, and I, it is when, um, a couple of things will happen. One is uh, well-off people will get access to that vaccine. Because if they have to drive across state lines, Right. They have to pay a little more money. Black market develops favors of friends and hospitals. That will happen. I don't think we need to worry about that. Um, what we need to do are a couple of things. One is we have to produce an abundance of vaccines. What do I mean by that? We need to produce more than we need to prevent a black market from happening. Um, second, we need to have those distribution points and logistical drop off points in every city and in, in, in rural communities. And then you know, we have to understand some other things with regard to it's, 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 you asked about vaccines. It's also about diagnostic testing. It's about therapies. Um, is we have to collect race and ethnicity data. So we know the differences in what therapies work, where and on whom, how distribution is in fact impacting people, what other um, underlying medical conditions are at work. And sadly, as we know, there are going to be people who will not be eligible for vaccines because they're immunocompromised. So um, we need holistic solutions. You know, when we think vaccine, we shouldn't think, ah, silver bullet. Ah, this will be like the measles vaccine. We're just one and done. We should think more like a, a influenza vaccine that has, um, that will help get immunity to a lot of people, but not necessarily everybody. Yeah. And the flu does kill a lot of people each year because we can't protect everybody against it. But uh, my concern just as someone who is concerned about these underserved populations as well is can they get not only the vaccine, but the tests and the treatment along the way. Um, as we're seeing, we have some special uh, accommodations for people who are uninsured now. Supposedly, they're getting that reimbursed by the government. Um, it's not clear if undocumented have the same uh, opportunity. And Wherever you're at ideologically, as you say, if an undocumented worker sits next to you on a bus, it doesn't really matter that they're undocumented if they're not getting the testing and treatment they need. So That's right. I'm wondering if that will uh, if that will be part of our plan going forward. 
But more broadly, uh, you know, there's some interesting speculation about vaccines and uh, issues around nationalism. You know, there's no guarantee that the vaccine will first be developed by an American company. <laughs> so uh, morally or not, in terms of trying to figure out how to share that with the rest of the world, we may not be first in line anyway. So what are your thoughts about how we can make sure that internationally a vaccine is developed and shared as equitably and, and as quickly as possible? Well, look, I think if a vaccine is developed first in China, which you'd have to give at least even money to, they got four candidates. They were the first, they were the first one to have the sequencing. Um, mm-hmm. Don't count on us getting that uh, first. Mm-hmm. We're not participating in the WHO process, um, which is, by the way, it's not too late. There's mm-hmm. going to be a number of candidates there. We are betting on and banking on, um, you know, not, not really. I mean, we have obviously two, um, front runners in the RNA category, but we have a lot of, of both American and global companies that we are going to bet on, um, probably be, I think eight at the end of the day. Um, and we'll build manufacturing, hopefully smartly in advance. We'll, we'll do study design, trial design. So wherever there's an outbreak, we'll be able to drop in, um, to do an AB study, but you know, it's, it's, and, and then I heard that the, the White House is going to describe what they call the oxygen mask approach, which is America is going to put on its oxygen mask first and then help the rest of the world put on their oxygen mask if we develop the drug first. Um, that's, that's, um, it's a really clever way of, of saying it. And look, is that as a president of the United States, you do have to look out for your own people, right? I'm not suggesting that. Um, you know, um, you don't, but, um, I really hope that the smart, cool, equitable heads prevail and say, let's start manufacturing this vaccine today. Let's make 7 billion. It's the smartest thing we can do. And if we have to do it twice or three times, because by the time we get through, um, third, the third uh, phase of a clinical trial, it, it fails, you know, we have to throw away, um, billions of vaccines. So be it. I think that's worth the bet. But you really want to have an abundance of vaccines um, created. Um, realistically, I think that takes global cooperation uh, to work. What, you, what you'll have in, in practicality is maybe, um, you know, the first few hundred million off the line, uh, if it's deed safe, you'll want to get it to your frontline medical workers and people in uh, who are most at risk first, and then start following it on with a with a with a rollout uh, like that. But I I'm afraid what you're worried about is going to come to fruition, both in this country and outside the country. That the people with the least will be the last to get access. Yeah, that'll be a challenge if the U.S. gives it to half their population first, then generously shares it with the rest of the world. We kind of know who's likely to be in that first half. Right. Right. Um, right. You mentioned the HEROES Act. Uh, what's your opinion, just more generally, we've had a number of these different stimulus or economic relief bills overall. What's your opinion of them so far, and what else is needed, not just in the healthcare side, but in the economic relief side? So, look, I'm, I'm encouraged. I mean, there, there, the, there are a lot of people who can find things to criticize about any of them, but the fact is they were completely bipartisan. They were done relatively quickly, um, and they – um, they met, they've been meeting a lot of needs, not, not perfectly, but, you know, I think to, to this point, they have sent a signal to the public that we are going to be behind them. What's a little bit 
nerve wracking now are a couple things. Um, one is this sort of notion that some folks on the Republican side don't want to extend unemployment insurance beyond, um, uh, beyond where it is today. And they have a real problem with the uninsurance and benefit being as high as it is. And um, I think that's going to be a point that's going to be, have to be hotly contested and negotiated. Second is um, McConnell's and Trump's call for employer liability protections. Uh, I'm going to write about this at, at some point soon. Um, but that's essentially saying we want to, not only do we want to open up, but we want you to take all the risk because if an employer calls you back to work and it's not safe, then we're going to, um, uh, not, you know, you're going to have to pay, pay the price of this. It's a little bit cynical. I suspect some version, some limited or modified version of that may make its way into the final bill. You mentioned healthcare coverage. That's obviously a whole, um, I think we could do a better job taking care of our frontline healthcare workers. You know, I have argued for a, um, a hazard pay stipend um, for for frontline medical workers and first responders. I think uh, I think that would be uh, wise. Um, I think allowing states uh, to expand Medicaid who haven't at least for the duration of the front of the emergency at, at no cost. I think would be really smart and really well really well spent. That's not going to make it in. Um, likewise, other triggers that help, uh, states right now, you know, there's just so many priorities that even at $3 trillion, if the bill ended up being that big, you'd still end up missing a lot of priorities. I know there's a lot of people very upset with things that aren't in the first bill, this, this latest bill, I should say, and it's $3 trillion, right? Mm -hmm. So it just goes to show what, how much pain there is. Yeah. Snap, snap and and food. I mean, that's that's an extremely high priority, and and protection for renters. Th those are those are high priorities. I, hopefully, they'll make it through um, the bill. I know they're Democratic priorities. Great. And you have you have uh, kids the same age as mine. So one of the pieces of information I'm getting all the time is, well, we're going to really balloon this deficit, and then our kids will be paying it for it forever. How do you think about that in terms of the trade-offs for today? Well, I just just say compared to what? Compared to a depression? Compared to a million deaths compared to what? So, uh, you know, I don't, I guess I'd say this, you know, we've got 0% interest rates. We've got deflation around the world. We've got the fed with an unlimited balance sheet. And, uh, we have no, we have no real commercial activity. So the federal government has no choice. The federal government has to be the economy right now. They have to be the bank. They have to be the economy. Now, they can do it in ways that stimulate the economy and growth to come back, right? They, there's nothing that says that they can't do this to build infrastructure, right? There's nothing that says that they can't stimulate the economy um, and growth and jobs uh, in ways that are constructive and productive. But, you know, we have to, we have to just accept the fact that we're going to have a government-driven economy for a short period of time or no economy at all. Mm -hmm. Right. And so, um, you know, I'd say this is not the kind of moment like just like World War Two wasn't when we had, you know, 35 percent of, of government spending of GDP was government spending. It's not the moment to worry about that uh, as much. Uh, we have we have incredibly low taxes in this country. We have a we have a very low corporate tax rate. We have a lot of econo economic power. There are a lot of 
trade power. There's a lot of things that we can do um, when we come out. I think we're going to come out of this slowly. I don't think the economy is going to bounce back right away. Mm-hmm. Uh, when it does, we're going to have to keep stimulating it. And as you remember from 2008, 2009, it took a few years. But once it's back, you know, it'll be back. Yeah, good. Well, I, I appreciate that optimism. We've, uh, this has been a great conversation. We've come to the point where we just have time for one last question. And we've been talking about big picture issues. Something that comes through in your tweeting and your podcast and that I've always admired about you is it's just clear how much you care about people. And many people here uh, today, as you know, are in a lot of need. Uh, and many people, including some of those in need, want to and are able to help in some way. And sometimes that makes people feel a lot better when they're so isolated, being able to help. So from your perspective, what's the most important things that individuals can do to fight this pandemic? Well, look, I'm so glad you asked the question. At one level, like, I think it starts with this. If you can help anybody, you're in position to help anybody at a time like this, help them. Whether it's a neighbor, whether it's a, a business, whether it's a store, whether it's someone who lost their job, whether it's a small way or a big way. Whether it's mentally, emotionally, financially, like this is a great time to help and it just makes you feel a lot better about this crisis. Mm-hmm. Second half of that, the reverse of that is true. If you need help, ask for it. There are people, as you just said, Mark, who want to do nothing uh, but help. Now, there are people that are helping in a huge way in this country. Like World Central Kitchen would be at the top of that list for me. Um, they are delivering 250,000 meals a day. This is Chef Jose Andres' organization. Um, you should have him. You should think about having him on Commonwealth if you haven't before. Mm-hmm. Um, he's a wonderful guy. Um, and he's also keeping 500 restaurants in business by having them be the distribution points to food banks. He's trying to iron out the entire food supply chain. Um, all of that comes out of donations. So World Central Kitchen, if you want something global to support, I would put that at the top of the list. I would probably put United States of Care lower down on the list, even though that's the organization I founded. Uh, but I also think it's worthy because what we're doing is we're, we've got a rapid response team that's helping every state find best practices and implement best practices. And uh, that's, that's been um, you know, immensely helpful and getting some of the laws passed and getting our resources into underserved communities. Um, but it doesn't matter where, um, mm-hmm. you know, it, it the, the fact that, People, I totally agree with you. People want to help any way they can. I mean, the, the notes I get, people who people who have sent in their entire stimulus checks, people who have been laid off and furloughed have used their entire stimulus checks for charitable causes. And I'd, I'd say we have a hashtag called hashtag the best of us. Anybody you want to recognize that's done something small or big for anybody else, mm-hmm. use the hashtag, hashtag the best of us, and you'll be able to call them out and they'll get uh, the right. recognition they deserve. Terrific. Andy, thanks so much for that. Thanks for the, thanks for today. And thanks for your leadership. I want to say that um, I'm proud to call you a friend and really appreciate all you're doing. I want to say to the audience that uh, you should visit us regularly at commonwealthclub.org to stay informed about other programs in this Commonwealth Club series on the pandemic done in association with the Zetima project. The next one is May 20th. We'll hear from Republican advisor, Lonnie Chen and former Obama official Farzad Mastashari, who Mandy mentioned before. They'll be discussing different visions for reopening the economy. That program will be posted later today. So a big thanks to, thanks to Andy Slavitt for joining us virtually for today's Commonwealth Club program. 
thanks to the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative and other donors. If you enjoyed the program, please make a donation yourself. I'm Mark Zitter of the Zetima Project, and now this virtual meeting of the Commonwealth Club is adjourned. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org slash donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support. Thank you.